probably get rolling four or five of us or no. Um, so we can finish up by eight o'clock and get out as we have purpose to do in the, on Wednesday nights. And, uh, so hopefully, I mean, the Wednesday night concept is going to have to, we're going to probably try to get into, uh, we haven't decided yet. We need to talk about how to, to roll. We've rolled this out. We had two weeks. We were off for a couple weeks. Then we rolled out the 101. So it's been a little bit herky jerky in terms of its application. But the bottom line is we're going to get to a very set regimened first three Wednesdays of every month, you know, something, something like that. So everyone can know what to expect. Um, there's also been a lot going on and a lot of weirdness in terms of schedules, everything from mission or conference to father's heart to everything else that we've had to work around. So thank you for bearing with us. And, and, uh, you'll be blessed. Those who are the faithful that to come tonight. Okay. So let's just pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity to deliver your word. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Always we are so grateful for who Jesus is to us, that he is the bread of life. Indeed, he is our life, eternal. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit, whom you gave, whom you sent, to be our comforter and to be our teacher and our guide and our helper. Holy Spirit, I submit to you, the members of my body, that you would use as a vessel to pour forth your flow and anointing through that would break yokes and move burdens and bring revelation. And we just extol you, O God, to the highest level tonight and all glory and honor to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. So we're going to talk. We're going to be on for the next two weeks. Then we're going to be off in order to allow the mission conference to come and go. And then we're going to come back back on. Uh, so we're just kind of working around the things that are going on. Uh, so we're going to talk for the next two weeks on the practical word, the practical word, the importance and practical word, if you will, the importance of, and the practice of it. And, uh, so I, you know, this is something that we could set forth and teach for multiple months on, uh, but I'm going to try to give just a, a, a good, uh, a hit or dose, if you will, over the next couple of weeks of the importance of the word tonight we'll discuss. And then next week we're going to actually discuss practical approach to the word of God. How do I approach the word of God? How do I get revelation out of it? And before I get into talking about the importance of the word of God tonight, and I believe some of this will be uh, some fresh revelation for some folks, some fresh uh, manna, if you will. Um, I want to ask a couple of questions. I think teaching, my teaching style in particular is always about questioning people and getting them to feed back into the process. So let me give you a couple questions or a few questions to ask yourself. First of all, what does the word of God really mean to you? What does it mean to you? And you know, I mean, is it, is it inspirational? I mean, is that something that might come to mind? Is it a good book with stories? You know, with good stories. Is it God's word to me? You know, these are some things, this, this, as I, as I thought about it, this is what I listed. Is it rules and regulations? Is it a mystery? Is it difficult? Is it boring? You know, I mean, what is the word of God to you? These are some of the things that it is to me. I'm just being practical. I'm being real. You know, and you say to yourself, Greg, you said the word of God's boring. It is. I'm sorry, but it is boring to me sometimes. And for those of you all that want to sit out there and say, it's never boring to me, you're a liar. 
Because I guarantee you haven't read the whole of the word of God like numbers and some of the parts in Leviticus and some of the other areas in the Bible that from us, from the natural mind's perspective, my goodness, it's arduous. It's like, why are we going through this? Nevertheless, it's boring to my soul. Nevertheless, it is in there for a reason. Absolutely is. How do you approach the word? That's the next question. How do you approach the word? Do you approach it routinely? Is it fits and starts? In other words, you get going for a while and then you stop for a little bit and then you get going for a while. Do you approach it as if it's the fast food? You know, is it a fast food concept? You know, this is what it is to me a lot of times. It's fast food. I'm looking for the quick hit, the microwave portion of the word of God. The McDonald's version of the Word of God that I can get crammed down and get in to fit into my schedule. Amen or oh me. Like any other book or literature, is that the way you approach it? Is it through others' experience or interpretation only? Is that the way you approach it? In other words, you never have an experience or interpretation of your own self. In other words, you don't approach it by yourself. You approach it through everybody else's interpretations, their teaching, their their experience. Or how about never? Is that the way you approach the Word of God? Never? You You never approach it. The next question, why do you read the Word? Why do you read it? So it's what does it mean? How do you approach it? Why do you read it? Why? Why the word? Do you do it because of duty? You know, your sense of duty as a Christian. Do you do it because you desire to hear from God? Do you do it because it's a code of ethics that you're trying to achieve from the word? Is it a religious checkoff? Is that why you do it? Or is it because someone told you to do it? Someone like Pastor CJ or Pastor Dale. Or a leader in your life that you respect. Is that why you do it? Okay. I want you to be thinking about these questions as we go through this, uh, uh, these next couple weeks. And so the next thing I want to ask you is how many of you have actually ever been taught how to approach the word of God? And so I'm going to ask a census. How many have actually had teaching about how to approach the word of God? I'm talking about practical steps in approaching the word of God. Raise your hands. Okay, most everybody here, most everybody here. And so what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks, we're going to learn about the importance of the word. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. And then we're going to talk about practical ways to approach the word of God, how you, how you actually read the word, why you read it, what you get out of it, and so forth. So we're going to do that next week. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the Bible. I mean, what is it about the Bible? I mean, why the Bible Let's talk a little bit about what the Bible is. I think it's important if we're talking about how it's important and then why, how we're going to approach it and what we're going to get out of it. We need to know what the Bible is. And the sad reality is if you go and ask probably eight to nine out of ten Christians today, have you ever read the Bible from cover to cover? I will venture to say it will at least be 80% to say no. 70 to 80%. That's, that saith Greg. I've not seen that statistic, but in my experiences, I talk with Christians that have walked with God a long time. When you ask them, have you read every book of the Bible? You know, it's, it, well, I've read verses out of most of the book. Well, have you read all of the Bible from cover to cover at some point in time? The answer is probably going to be no. You know, for a majority of Christians, 
And uh, so, and then if you ask them about where the Bible came from, people, a lot, I've, maybe even higher than that, can't even tell you where it came from. I think it's important to have a little bit of this knowledge behind you. Everyone knows the Bible is comprised of 66 books. We learned this in Sunday school. You know, and it's divided up 39 among the old and then a 27 in the New Testament. It's written by 40 different authors, over 40 different authors from all walks of life. Everybody from shepherds to farmers to tent makers to physicians to fishermen to priests to philosophers to kings wrote the Bible that we know today. And despite the differences, though, in occupation and walks of life and social status, how much money they earned or didn't earn, despite all that, the Bible is is an extremely cohesive and unified book from cover to cover. You know, the Bible is written, all the books thereof, over a period of about, scholars argue, about fourteen to 1,500 years from the time of Moses to a hundred to about a hundred A.D. after the death of Christ and His resurrection, the oldest book is argued arguably Job, not Genesis. It was Job. Some people actually say the Pentateuch, as the first five was actually the oldest collection first. But you know, Job. A lot of times, most of the theologians agree that Job is probably the oldest book written. Um, some people say that you know, there's a lot of argument about who wrote Job. Some people say Moses wrote Job. Other people say it's just another Israel. They call him an Israelite. Who is that? Maybe Job wrote Job. Well, there's a lot of argument about that, and we're not going to talk about that. Doesn't matter, really. Written in three languages, the Bible is Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And you hear me oftentimes as I teach talk about the Greek says so and so. Well, that's the original. Uh, language upon which the new, most of the New Testament was written. The original language, uh, for which or, uh, or through which the Old Testament was wrought was the Hebrew and Aramaic. Okay? So if you want to get back to the original intent and meaning of the word, you have to get back to the, atmo- the utmost original language wherein it was written. So that's why you hear us talk about the Greek says, the Hebrew says, because words in English don't are adequate oftentimes to fully convey the original intent and meaning. And that's why we have so many different translations in English of the Bible, because guess what? We've got folks trying to do as much as they can to not just put it, not really put a spin on it, but to give their interpretation from a scholarly standpoint of what the author intended from the original language. Okay. And there's some argument. And so why? So you have multiple uh, translations. You know, the Bible first translated into English in 1382 by John Wycliffe. You know, you've heard of the Wycliffe translation. Well, he was the first one to translate it into English. It was printed in 1450, 1454 A.D. by Johannes Gutenberg, who invented the printing press. And guess what the first thing print ever mass printed was? Yes, that's right. It was the Bible. Do you think there is any significance to that? Well, sure, there's significance to it. First, first book ever printed in mass production. It's the most distributed book known to man and ever will be known to man. And it's been translated in over 2,000 languages with countless partial translations and audio translations for even unwritten languages. A lot of languages that we don't even have written word or script or alphabet or anything for, but it nonetheless has been translated into. Uh, audio wise or orally. 
So it's an enormous amount of translation. And in comparison, Shakespeare, who's considered by many to be the kind of the pinnacle or the master writer of the English language. I mean, the one who contributed the most in terms of the, the pinnacle of writing and what people would ascribe themselves to, to learn the English language, if you will, the highest and, and, and the most pristine um, uh, conveyance of the English language. It's only been translated in about 50 languages, Shakespeare. 50 over 2,000. 50 over 2,000. Does that say something to us? It's divided into two parts, Old and New Testaments. You know, and the foundation of the message of that, and you can actually talk about it from this perspective, really the word testament is not adequate and doesn't really convey the fullness of what it means. It's really translated from the word testament, translated from the word covenant. And so when you see Old and New Testament, just replace the word testament with covenant because the old previous, you know, first books of the Bible, the Old Testament, that's the old covenant. The New Testament is about the new covenant post-Jesus. Okay, so when you look at the Bible in terms of a theme, in terms of what it's about, it is, the entirety of the Bible is is conveying the story of the covenant or the contractual relationship entered into by God with man. The Old Testament is the Abrahamic covenant. It was the legal right by which Jesus could pass into this earth in the physical realm and be the, the heaven's eternal Passover lamb, the one and only. And it's avenue for atonement. And the New Testament covenant is the messianic covenant. It's the one of our Jesus Christ. And it, it's the legal right of our identification with him and restoration of our family relationship, our familiar relationship with God. And it brought about the fulfillment of the law and rendered grace unto people. That's the new covenant. Amen. That's the new covenant. So old covenant, new covenant. That's the way I like to refer to the Bible You know, the whole intent of the Bible is to relay the principles and story of reconciliation of man to God, the restoration of his relationship and right for relationship and the right to everything that he, that God has through the acceptance of Jesus Christ and our identification through him. Amen. That's what the whole Bible is about. It's about, yes, starting out with man being created, his fall, at the very, very first, and then the whole rest of the Bible is establishing how God could reconnect with man and bring him back to his former uh, calling. That's what it's about. That's what the whole of the Bible is about. How about the reliability of the word? We're not here going to talk about a bunch of apologetics and so forth, but it is important to understand that the Bible is not just a bunch of assembled books and assembled literature that is flim-flam in terms of its origin, in terms of its meaning and its reliability. And when most people, when they look, even philosophers, when they look to determine the accuracy of something, particularly historians, they, they always kind of agree to look upon about three different types of tests, the first one being the bibliographic test. And that is just to look at all the different copies of the of the literature, how many different people copied it, and whether or not the copies are are equivalent. If I look at this copy that was rendered by this guy, this copy that was rendered by this person, this copy that was rendered by this person, are, are they equivalent or is there like massive differences? 
Okay? That's bibliographic test. And, and not only between people, but over time. Do, 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 does the word and the integrity of what's being conveyed maintain itself through time as it's copied? That's the bibliographic test. The next one is the internal test of reliability. The author verifies or disqualifies himself or herself by known factual inaccuracies or contradictions. So the people that are writing things, so the authors of the Bible as they would write things, if they wrote things in error to the actual historical record, then there is a, a there is a te- an internal test that has failed right there. Because if they wrote about things that didn't actually occur or they wrote about them wrongly, that's a failure of this test. Okay? The external test is the third test of reliability. And it is just looking at the authenticity of the document in regard to its historical and archaeological evidence or other writings. So not comparison unto itself, but comparison unto other historical writings that were contemporary with this development, as well as archaeological things, facts, figures, um, actual archaeological evidence that can be found to to either confirm or refute the things that are written about in the Bible or any book for that matter. That's an external test. And the bottom line is we know, and I can go, to, you can go online and find ad nauseum, uh, uh, um, examples and to show you that the Bible passes all three of these tests in flying colors. All three of them. The events recorded in the Bible, they're well documented from multitudes of sources. You know, both both religious and secular, they're well substantiated by archaeological evidence and many literary works outside the the actual Bible that is, you know, the books that were canonized. And in spite of the diversity of human authors, you got over 40 people. And how hard is it to get two or three people together to say a lot of the same things? What about 40 people plus? That's a pretty tough measure to pass. You get those people all saying the same things. All pointing to and having and translating and building upon and, and pointing to the same thing. And that's about covenant, about, about establishing the line for Jesus, about showing his death, burial and resurrection and his victory at the end of this thing. Ultimately, you see all that taking place, you know, and you see that occurring across two millennia, folks. And the theme is the same. God is God. There is no other. His love and desire for man is undying. It's unquenchable and it's internally pervasive. That's the theme. And you see that. And it holds true through all the, uh, the books, through all the authors over 1500 years after, you know, that it's been written. Man, that's a huge pass of those tests of, the, of, of these reliability tests as far as I'm concerned. Now let's move on. If you spend a couple minutes on that, let's talk about the importance of the word. So for those that came in late, we're talking about the practical word. And we're going to spend a couple weeks tonight talking about the importance of the word. Why is it that we need the word of God? I mean, what is the big deal about the word? Why is Pastor CJ and Pastor Dale continually go on and on about the need to get in the word of God, to consume the word of God? What is it? So let's talk a little bit about its importance. The first thing I'm going to talk about, and I'm going to, I'm going to shunt most of this discussion into next week, but I've got to allude to because the first thing in my mind of import, of, that needs to be talked about is the Bible or the Word of God is our spiritual food. It's our spiritual sustenance. And you can hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 4, 4 to confirm this. It says, he answered and said, read letter in my Bible and yours, man shall not live by bread alone. 
Well, he's talking about physical bread there. So he's saying that man shall not, his only existence and sustenance for his life cannot be only the physical sustenance. It has to be something else. What does he say? He says, he says, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And the, the other food here that he's talking about, the, the but by, you know, not the bread alone, but by every word that proceeds is not just the words on a page, folks, that we see in the canonized uh, Bible that we have, all the books that are canonized into the form of Holy Bible. It's not just words on a page, but it's the words on this page that continue to speak as the oracles of God today. That I mean, these words are the living words of our God, inspired of the Holy Spirit, brought through men. Okay? And and the Bible says that the word of God never fails. And in fact, it cannot die and it cannot return void and it will never go away. Everything else, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will remain forever is what God says through Jesus. And so the word proceedeth here is in the Greek, a present tense word which means that it's continuing action. It means that it's continuing to speak today. It means that God speaks right now through his word. The words continue to come forth. And if you look at Young's literal translation, I like the way this renders it. It says, but he answering said, it hath been written, not upon bread alone doth man live, but upon every word coming forth from the mouth of God. The word coming forth is a present tense right now action that is never going to stop. It continues coming forth as we continue to engage and open our ears to receive it. Okay? The word here, word, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word... That word comes from the Greek word. Here we go, talking about the Greek language now, the original uh, uh, thing that the language the New Testament was rendered from. It's the word rhema. It's not just logos. It's not just any old word. It's the word rhema. Well, what in the world, Greg, does rhema mean? Let me just boil it down to this. It means the communicated word. You know, I can talk and talk and talk, but it doesn't mean I communicate with you. You can hear and hear and hear, but it doesn't mean that you receive Amen. Same thing with God. Same thing with God. Just because I taught, just because God's word is here doesn't mean it's communicated to you. Let me just boil it down this way and just say it's, it it is the word that is received and understood. That's what rhema is. If you want to redefine rhema, I'll just, I'll just boil it down into two simple words. Receive, understand. The word received and understood. That's rhema. The word received and understood. So man shall not live by every or by bread alone, but by every word received and understood from God. That's what we're to live by. Spiritual food. Okay, so the second thing, we're gonna I'm gonna defer a lot of the conversation about that next next week. Second thing is about the importance of the word of God. That's what we're talking about tonight. It's the way that we access the divine nature of God inside of us. You want to know about how important the word of God is? It's as important as your ability to tap the inner power God has put inside you as a redeemed child of God. 
You don't use the word of God. You don't spend any time with the word of God. You don't, re- you don't receive and understand the word of God. You will not access. You will not appropriate the power of the living God inside of you for good living, for living a godly life, for living an overcoming life. And so it's so important. So people ask, well, how important is the word of God? It's as important as your ability to tap that which God has placed inside of you, the overcoming power of the living God that raised Jesus from the dead and will can quicken your mortal essence is what, what Paul said in Romans. That's how important it is. Well, how do we tap that? Well, you got, you have to get in the word of God. You tap it through the word of God. Okay. So everybody, I want everybody to turn over to Peter, please. For, uh, let's go to second Peter. And I'm going to give a reference to inspiration for this, for some of this tonight that we're about to talk about coming from a particular teaching of a minister that I have great, great respect for. And he did a series called What's Really Important. And I have listened and listened and listened to that series and just chewed and chewed and chewed. And it has just gotten down inside of me and just further expanded further blown up the truth of God in my life on these issues, and I want to share it with you. Okay. So if you turn over to Second Peter, and let me get over there right quick, sorry. Technology is wonderful until it doesn't work. Okay, is everybody there? Second Peter, chapter one. Okay, let's read verse one. It says, Simeon, Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Let me, let me turn it over to, let me get to the King Jimmy here. Simon Peter, a servant apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have attained like precious faith. With us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so let's, we're just going to do a little bit of word study as we go down through here, kind of verse by verse and break down some of this. Again, we're talking about the importance of the word of God. And I've seen that really in this first chapter of Second Peter, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a more iterated example of how important the Word of God is and, and exactly what it accomplishes for you than right here. I mean, this, this is going to lay it out in fine form. And I'm talking about this is revelation of the Spirit of God. We're talking about a fisherman here that brought forth these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So this isn't a person that is a teacher. He's not astute in terms of the knowledge and wisdom of the things of this world. But guess what? He's applied himself to hear, receive, and understand the word of God. And that's what he's bringing forth here and its importance. So he says, to them that have obtained like precious faith. Well, if you talk about who's he talking to here, the reason why I want to break this down is because the importance of this is to realize he's talking to believers here. He's talking to Christians just like you and me. He says to those of like precious faith, another way you could say that is to those that have the same faith, that receive the same faith. And if you want to understand a little bit more about that, you can, you need to understand that all of us have received a measure of faith. And Romans 12, 3, uh, 3, and for a lot of you all that might sit out there and say to yourself, well, I don't have faith like some people. 
Well, that's baloney because the word of God is very clear. We've all received the same measure to start with. That's very clear by the word of God. Romans 12, 3 tells us that. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Right there it is laid out that every man, every woman, every boy and child and and girl has been dealt a measure of faith. And it's, and as Peter puts it, it's equal. Here to say like precious means just to those that have received equal faith. You've received the same faith as I received. It's another way to say it. Now, so everyone's given a measure of faith, but here's the point. Here's the issue. You are responsible then to build your faith, to build upon it, to develop it, to strengthen it. And the best analogy that comes to my mind is muscles. There's not a person sitting here that hasn't been given the same muscles that the person next to him has. I don't care how big you are. I mean, there might be some difference in volume, but guess what? I got two biceps. I got two triceps. You got two biceps, you got two triceps, everyone around here, and it don't matter, girls, you got two biceps, you got two triceps, you've got gluteus maximuses, you're sitting on them right now. Everyone has been given muscles. Guess what? You've been given that, you've been given that measure of ability to, to work, to do work, to move, to be able to, to get around, just like everybody else has. But here's the rub. I can go and and spend time in a gym. I can go and be like Marty Yunt or my dad and spend five hours, six hours a day outside pulling weeds, hacking down trees with an axe, doing things that, guess what, will develop my muscles that I've been given. Y'all see that? And it will make me stronger than those of you all that do not do that. Except for the guys that are 350 pounds and six foot six already and have an innate strength stronger than mine. But the bottom line is he can develop his strength even more too. And that's what you see with all sports, F- football, basketball. There's those guys spend hours upon hours upon hours in the gym training, developing what God has given them. Same thing for faith. We've all been given faith muscles. But those of us that choose to go and develop and feed and develop and feed and develop will be stronger and grow stronger and go stronger with our faith. Just like muscles. No difference. It's exactly the same. So then the question becomes, how do we build our faith? You know? Okay, so you're responsible to build your faith. And um, listen to what Hebrews 12.2 says. It says, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the beginning and end of our faith. If he's the starter and he's the completer, if you will, finisher being like a completer of our faith, well, then who is Jesus, though? He's the word of God. So then we could replace the word Jesus or the name Jesus with the word is the author and finisher of our faith. Do you see what I'm saying? The word is the author and finisher of our faith. The word starts and it finishes our faith. It completes it. It strengthens it. Romans 10, 17, faith comes. That's the only way faith comes outside. And what it really, to me, what it means is faith is built or strengthened by Hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's Romans 10, 17. You want your faith to be built, it's going to come by only one way, and it's the word of God. You take the word of God out of it, forget it. Forget it. You cannot develop your faith outside the word of God. 
So faith, and now the next thing about faith I want to say real quickly is it is the foundation, folks. It's not the end point of our development. Contrary to a lot of, of, of people that have done so much to put a lot of emphasis on faith, and it seems like that's all that you hear is about developing faith. And I'm not saying anything about faith teaching because I am one. I am one and have been developed under one. But listen, faith is not the end. Faith is the beginning. It's a foundation. The sad reality is those people are carrying forth the word of God to get people to get foundation in their lives in this. So faith, we got to get past faith, though. We're going to learn about that here in just a minute. Okay, so um, I'll defer to later. So now let's look at, at, at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God. Everybody say, through the knowledge. Okay, through the knowledge of God. That's how grace and peace are going to come to you, but not just come, but be actually multiplied unto you, is through the knowledge. And then look in verse 3. It says, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge. Everybody say, through the knowledge. Here we go again. So we're seeing Peter lay forth that grace and peace comes by uh, by the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. And then we see him further expand on that grace and peace and breaking it down into actually everything that pertains to life and godliness. Is everything all things? Yeah. Everything means everything. All things. That means his divine power gives us and has given us, in fact, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that's called us to glory and virtue. Glory being our relationship and our essence before God, virtue being our relationship and essence before man. You see that? So it's it's life and godliness. It's our ability to live our life first before God in within his presence. That's glory. And then virtue would be our moral excellence or the witness that we live in application and the word of God working through us, working that life out in us before man. You see that? That's how that happens. But guess what? It happens through the knowledge of him. I'm building up to something here. Through the knowledge of him. So notice that grace and peace and everything for life and godliness come through the knowledge. Well, how does this come? What is this the knowledge of? Does anyone venture a guess? This knowledge, actually from the Greek, the word knowledge means full discernment. Does that sound like anything we talked about? Receiving and understanding. Full discernment or understanding. It's not, in other words, it's not common knowledge. It's not something that you just have. It's something that you attain, obtain. And you obtain it some, a certain way. It's not just common sense or common knowledge. It's something you obtain. It's called revelation. That's how you have grace and peace multiplied unto you. That's how you're going to be able to have all you need for life and godliness is through the knowledge of God. And again, I ask, what is this the knowledge of? What are we talking about here? So let's look in verse 4. It says, whereby are giving, uh, given unto us, in other words, whereby, you know, uh, the divine power has given us, whereby exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 
Okay, this verse 4, are you ready to strap on your seatbelts and get some revelation? Okay, so we see several things here just in this one verse. We could spend the rest of the night just on this one verse here. But I'm going to venture to get through it very quickly here. So by the promises, in other words, by these great and precious promises that have been given to us, we might be. The word here doesn't say that you would be partakers. It said you might be. I want to put a particular emphasis on that because might be from the Greek, what that word might be comes from, it comes from a word that means potential. In other words, there's a potential for you through these great and precious promises to partake of the divine nature, but it doesn't mean that it's automatically appropriated to you. It doesn't mean you automatically do it. It means you might partake in it. That's what the word says here now. Through these great and precious promises, you might partake. So that means that there's a condition here. In other words, this isn't a sovereign thing that's only up to God. Guess what else? Who else has a part in this? Oh, man, we got a part. And we got a really big part. And, you know, let me give you the the opposite or comparative thing. Like if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where it talks about the this works or the gifts of the Spirit and the offices that he puts people into... That's not subjunctive. That is not a might be. That is not a potential. That is sovereign. God makes the decision on how he gifted CJ. He makes the decision on how he gifted you, Ron. He made the decision on what office he puts you in. You see, that that's not up to you. That's up to him completely. There's no might be or potential to it. You have been chosen for that and gifted to do it. That's not a might be. This is the opposite of that. This is where there is you having a, having a part in this. That's where the might be comes from. Okay. So it's a potential. It depends on us. Okay. But again, here it says through these great and precious promises. Again, what are the promises? What is this the knowledge of? How about the 7,000 odd promises of the word of God? You think that might be the promises that Peter's talking about here? Sure it is. You, did you know that there's over 7,000 documented promises in the Word of God from cover to cover? To cover? Do you think that in 7,000 that there might be a promise or two that would pertain to most of the needs you have? Most of the things you might need or, or, or uh, might need to have in order to do something? I would think so. The odds are yes. They're there. Everything for life and godliness, success, confidence, health, prosperity, strength, wisdom, and so much more are in those 7,000 promises. But notice in verse 4, I want you to notice something else. You don't have the divine nature, you partake of it. See, it doesn't say that you have the divine nature. It says by these you might partake of the divine nature. So in other words... Even though you have a choice to, to, to participate, it's not just you making an election to participate, then it's gifted or granted to you. It just says that you can, that you can receive this. That you can partake of it. It's not just automatically credited, credited, uh, to you. So now, what is the divine nature that this talk is talking about in verse, in, in, uh, uh, Chapter uh, one, verse four, whereby are given to us exceeding great and promises that the, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. What is that divine nature we're talking about here? It's, it's simply our growth in God. 
We're going to see Peter iterate this in just in a, in a verse or two later. It's also, though, all things. So if you look at at this uh, word here, exceeding great and precious, you might be protected of the divine nature. That's talking. The divine nature is talking about the divine growth in God from the Greek. That's what that means. It also, though, means all things in the previous verse that pertain to life and godliness, the things that he was talking about. That we, that we can, uh, that we have been given through these promises that we can obtain. So it's the things that we need to succeed, to thrive, to live the life that God wants us to live for Him and others. Things like forgiveness, things like healing, things like prosperity, peace of mind, wisdom, and the list goes on and on. Those are the things that we, uh, can, can obtain through the promises of God, through the Word. In other words, we're talking about the importance of the Word of God. Don't anybody go to sleep on me now. I'll shout real loud. Okay. And so here's another, uh, a good example. It's the well of life within us that comes upon us receiving Jesus. That's the divine nature. It's the well of God within us. And if you look at John 4.14, listen to what Jesus said as he's talking to the woman at the well. And he sits down and asks that that woman, woman, would you give me a drink? And, you know, they have a little bit of a a discourse there. And and she he ends up saying, you know, she ends up saying, you asking me for a drink? (laughs) You know, here I am, not only a Samaritan, but I'm a woman and you're asking me for a drink. And, you know, and then Jesus says, you know, if you knew who you're talking to here, you know, I could give you water that would last forever and, and, you know, that you'd never thirst again. And of course, then the, the woman's like, wait a minute, the well is really deep and you don't have anything to draw with. How can you obtain water, this water, much less whatever water you're talking about? She had no idea what he's talking about. She thought he was, he was referring to the natural water. And you know, that was Jacob's wells, what the word says. And it was a very deep well, according to the scripture. And it took a long rope and a big old bucket to, to keep hauling that water out. But listen to what Jesus says. He equates what happens to us upon the new birth inwardly to that experience in the well. He says, but whosoever drinks of this water that I shall give him, this is John 4, 14, shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him in him or that i shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up to everlasting life so what happens upon us when we receive jesus our personal lord and savior we become born again well what happens is there's a well that is is created with inside of us and what it is is it's a well of the divine nature of god that guess what? We can reach down into at any time and pull up what we need from that well. And it's an internal sourcing. It's something that God creates inside of us. It's his nature. It's after his, after who he is and everything that he is. But here's the thing. You have to draw that, the things out of that well. You have to draw. You have a part to play here. You have to draw the things of God, the divine nature, out of your well. God doesn't come there and just sit, just pour it out upon you. He's already created the potential for you to have whatever you need inside of you, but you've got to draw it out. That's that thing that Peter was talking about when he says that you, that you might partake. Because you have a role to play. We have to draw out that potential and draw upon it. 
And how do we do that? Here's the, here's where we're building up to. How do we draw upon the, the waters of life inside of us? How do we draw out the divine nature of God inside of us? Very simply, you do it with the promises of God. People say, well, what are you talking about? Well, what did Peter say? By these great and precious promises, by these great and precious promises, what does it say in verse uh, 3? That you're given all things that pertain to life and godliness, the knowledge of him, whereby in verse 4, exceeding great and promises, that by these, by these, by these promises, you might partake. So in other words, to, for you to partake of the divine nature, which is that well inside of you, for you to tap it and draw out of it, you're going to tap it and draw out of it by these, by the great and precious promises. Again, what are those great and precious promises? The word of God. The word of God. Very simply. And you use these promises to draw out the divine nature. And I like what the minister referred to. He referred to them as buckets. And he said, we have over 7,000 of them. Over 7,000 buckets to draw out and draw upon the divine nature that's inside of us. Do y'all see that? That's an awesome uh, example. Awesome example. Okay, and so let's finish out verse 4. It says, by the word, you also, if you look at the end of verse 4, it says that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. You might be able to, through these great and precious promises, draw upon the divine nature within inside of you. You might, through these great and precious promises, grow into the things God has called you to, grow spiritually. But then you also uh, to partake of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You know, we look so much and focus so much from a, a religious standpoint upon sin. You know, in, in, in people's lives. And, you know, the, you know, there's a lot of, there may be a lot of argument about what causes people to sin, about why people can't seem to get out of the sin that they're in, particular things that are happening to them or that they're, they're engaging in or so forth. And I'm fixing to lay out very clearly why, how you can guarantee your success to absolve that sin in your life. Guaranteed. Because it's called partaking of the divine nature. It's called supplanting that sin with the divine nature, displacing it, moving it to the side and replacing it with the divine nature. That's what, that's what, how you overcome sin. That's how you overcome anything that's not godly in your life. And we know that the way we partake of the divine nature is by one thing, and it's by the great and precious promises. It's by the word of God. Through these that you might partake of the divine nature. Through these you might partake of the divine nature. Through what? The great and precious promises. What are the great and precious promises? The word of God. That's how you do it. So the word is the way that we avoid sin and work our way out of it. You know, and the bottom line is, though, so many folks, including myself, a lot of times, we're looking for a quick fix. We want the microwave approach to absolvance of sin in our life, to to getting us back on track. You know, and not doing that thing that's displeasing in the sight of the Lord. You want that quick fix. And a lot of times, you, what ends up happening is, is they pray and ask God to take it away. God, you gotta stop this. Make me stop this. Make me stop this. 
And then if that, when that doesn't work, then they go to their brother and sister in Christ and ask them to pray long hours with them. Oh, brother and sister, will you intercede for me that this might go away, that I might stop doing this, that I can change my ways and do what God wants me to do. But I'm here to tell you tonight by the unction of the Holy Ghost and the word of God that it's very clear that prayer does not absolve sin in your life. It's the word of God through prayer. It's the word of God and the spirit. If you don't get the word of God in you, sin will not be absolved in your life. You have to have and you have to partake of the divine nature by way of the word of God to get make those corrections, to displace them out of your life. So, so many of us, you're looking for that quick fix. And, and, and you think it's going to be through a prayer or through multiple hours of prayer only. In other words, but you're not going to partake. You're not going to, to, to learn study and learn the word of God and, and let that become something that you hear, not just hear, but you understand and you do. That's the key. It's not just hearing, it's doing the word. And if you do the word, you will not sin. You will not sin if you do the word. Fully, whatever that area is in your life. You have to get the word inside of you. You have to get these great and precious promises inside of you and let it displace the evil desires. Let it displace, because that's what lust is. It talks about corruption or, if you will, decay by way of lust. And if you stop and you think, lust is really nothing but a burning desire for something, an appetite. And, and it could be lust, it could be sexual lust, it could be food lust for crying out loud. It could be, it could be lust to play video games and occupy your whole time with nothing but that. It could be anything. I mean, just this burning desire. It's like you just cannot, it, that's what lust is. A lot of people just equate lust only to sexual things. Oh no. Oh no. That's not what's being talked about here. It talks about the corruption or the decay that is in the world through lust. Well, that's all the above, all the appetites that are that are beyond temperance, particularly for things that are wrong. Now, listen to me. If you don't believe what I'm saying, you know, I, the minister talked about a particular example of a, of someone that fell, someone that everyone in here knows fell into sexual issues and, and fell into uh, promiscuity. And, it, and was, it was nationally televised, him repenting before America and all this kind of stuff. This was years ago. And it's a well-known evangelist. Everybody knows who this is. But he said that he took particular note of the fact that as he was b- delivering that message, he kept talking about how he prayed and how he prayed and how he prayed and how he had his own pastor pray with him long hours into the night that this lust would go away, that this lust would stop, that he could get control. And then he said that this guy that I'm talking about that's teaching this, he said, you know, God, the Holy Spirit just struck me that clearly and said, you know what? It's not the prayer because he missed out on the point and the, the issue to absolve the sin in his life. It's what David said or what was said over in Psalm 119.11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And that's what it comes down to. You've got to get the word inside of you that you might not sin against God. Do you see that? 
Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm taking or I'm saying. Don't go out here and say, Greg is saying dot to pray with regard to sin in your life. I'm not saying that. But what I'm trying to tell you is you cannot expect a quick fix outside the word of God. You're going to have to get in the word and allow the spirit and the word through prayer to work those truths out into your life to get to a place that you will hear, understand, and displace the nature of sin in your life. The things that's driving that, the lust that's there, displace that, absolve it from your life. Okay, so I've got just a few minutes here. Let's look at uh, verses 5. And so what we see here in verses 5 through 7, this is wonderful, and I'm encouraging everybody to go home and spend time in these verses that we've covered here this week. Spend time, ask the Holy Spirit to give you revelation. Meditate on these. I want you to listen very clearly, though, and closely to what's being said here in these next verses, because he further goes on to expound on this partaking of the divine nature and growing in in God, partaking of the growth spiritually, because I feel like that verses 5 through 7 very clearly paint a picture of spiritual growth. People want to look and characterize and ask about what is spiritual growth? What does it mean to grow spiritually? I will submit to you, uh, exhibit A, first Peter chapter, or second Peter chapter one, verses five through seven. And really, I don't need to go a whole lot more beyond that because this really outlines it well. The Holy Spirit knew what he was talking about as he spoke to Peter here. And listen to what it says, and it says, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Now remember what I talked about. About faith is the beginning. It's the foundation. It is not the end-all, be-all of your spiritual growth. How can I say that? Because why don't, why don't we read what it says? Add to your faith. Faith is the first thing, and then he goes on from there. He doesn't stay back on faith. He moves on because it takes faith to access and have a foundation for everything else. So if you can't get the faith thing down, then we're, we're going to have a tough time building anything. That's how come the faith message is so important. We've got to get that foundation out there. And so he says, add to your, uh, it says, uh, give all diligence. Well, all diligence means your utmost commitment. That's what diligence means to me. It says, add to your faith virtue. Well, what is virtue? If you look at it from the Greek, it's actually a word that means your walk before men in this world. Your walk of moral excellence before men. Not because you're showing how good you are or how pious you are or how holy you are, but it is the outward example of your faith in applying the divine, accessing and manifesting the divine nature from the inside to the outside. It's the result of faith. James said, faith without works is dead. It's the works part of faith. That's what this is. Virtue. Your life before man. Your life before women. So you can think about that. So you add to your faith virtue. And then to virtue, you add knowledge. And if you look at the word knowledge from the Greek, we're going to break this down. The word knowledge here is not the same knowledge that it talked about through the knowledge. You you partake of the divine nature through the knowledge. It's not talking about that. It's a different Greek word here. It's actually gnosis, which means common knowledge. So now it's talking about just common sense. Common sense. And who was it, Will Rogers, that said, as I live and breathe and walk through life, I find out that common sense ain't so common. And I seem like in my life I see that more and more. It's like common sense is just gone. 
It's like you just almost like you're, it's like an innate trait that some people are born with it and others don't even have it. But anyway, you add to your faith virtue. You add to your virtue, you know, common sense. You grow into a place and a manifestation of common sense, not being a weirdo, in other words, as you relate to people. You know what I'm saying? Man, too many times I, I, I think that Christians can sometimes be weirdos to, to the world. We don't need to be weirdos, you know. In other words, things that uh, always speak in the language and doing the things that they can't understand or, or, or see, you know. Not able to relate. No, you need to add to yourself that common sense. Have that be a part of the process here. And then to knowledge or this common knowledge, temperance. And if you look at the word temperance from the Greek, it really, what it means is, it doesn't mean what a lot of people think it means. It really means uh, to control your appetites for things. That's what it means. It just means being satisfied before you go too far. <laughs> it, it, it's things like, for me, I know God dealt with me about when I need to push away from the table. Temperance about when I need to turn the TV off. See, those aren't sins, you know, to watch TV, to eat food and enjoy it, to enjoy whatever it is, you know, that we can enjoy that God, you know, has provided opportunity to entertain us and so forth through technology, whatever the case may be. It's not, that's not a sin to have an iPhone is not a sin to access Facebook is not a sin. You know, to look at, at and enjoy your family through those mediums, that's not a sin. But guess what? If you're, if that is occupying most all of your time and there's no time for anything to partake of the divine nature, you need some temperance. You need some temperance. That's what temperance means. And then to temperance, we need to add patience. And of course, we know what this means. This means the ability to endure through situations. And endure, from the Greek's perspective, to endure with joy. Now, there adds a little layer of, of, of issue. Not just to endure, but to endure with joy. It's like James, you know, count it all joy. I think that was James, wasn't it? Okay, and then let's just finish this out. And then to patience, godliness. Well, then this is actually, see, we're building up, we're ramping up. Now we're to the place that we are, God, we are, we are, are seeing the manifestation of godlike qualities now. I mean, even more, higher level, godlike qualities, like God, godliness, to be like Him. And then to godliness, brotherly kindness. Well, guess what this is? This is our relationship to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to our family. And, you know, that's more important first than our relationship anywhere else. We need, this has to be good first. If we can't get this right, forget getting that right out there. Right, Pastor CJ? That's what we're trying to do from a leadership team perspective. That's what we're trying to instill through the body is love God and love people. But we got to love people first here. we we got to love each other and be able to live and walk together. If we can't do that, how are we going to love and walk with people that aren't in our family? My goodness. That's brotherly kindness, if you will. But then notice it doesn't stop at the love with people that we know, at the love with the people that that are, are like precious faith. Where does it go on to? It goes on to brotherly kindness. Add to that charity. And if you look at the word charity, it's agape. 
And agape is the pinnacle of love. And guess what? That's the love to others outside the fold. That's the God reaching through us. That's the God moving into our relationship or moving us to a place of desire to relate to people and meet needs outside of our fold. That's where we're going. And isn't that a picture of spiritual maturity? Because I can guarantee you we can get to the place that when you look at anyone and you want to characterize whether or not they're spiritually mature, how much, how far do you see them in this progression from five to seven? Do you see them to the place that, that you do see agape love manifesting through them? How about brotherly kindness? Let's just start with that. Brotherly kindness. You know, do we see that? See what I'm saying? So you can gauge yourself in terms of where you're at in the progression here of these things. Okay, and so it's eight o'clock, so I need to I need to stop. Okay, so we'll pick up where we leave, uh, left off here. I've got a few things, and then we'll get into actually getting into the Word of God. Okay, all right. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Father God, for another opportunity to hear the Word. Oh, Holy Spirit, thank you for delivering Word, and I thank you for leading us into truth and knowledge. Thank you for taking the things that were that were said, oh God, and, and and straightening them out, making them right, making them fully truth, oh God. If I muddled anything up, oh God, I thank you that you make the difference. You're more than just the difference maker. You're the beginning and the end. You're the author and finisher. Oh, precious word of God, thank you for your light in our lives. And we invite that the work of that light in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>